Good evening, ghouls and ghoulettes, and welcome to Killer Horror Critic, the podcast worth dying for. Hosted by the Killer Horror Critic himself, this is the show where guests from all over the horror spectrum join to talk about some of their favorite horror films. So get snugged under the covers, grab a cuddly puppy, and prepare for tonight's blood-curdling episode of Killer Horror Critic. Good evening, horror fans, and welcome to another episode of Killer Horror Critic. I'm your host, Matt. And I'm Chris. And we are your killer couple critiquing and arguing over horror films, like a couple of weirdos at the bar. So maybe we never quite enlighten you, maybe we never blow your mind, maybe we never... Take your head off with a giant lion head. <laughs> but hopefully you just have a good time listening. So today we are kicking off our month-long theme of Home Sweet Haunted Houses. And we're starting with the 1999 film The Haunting, which is both a sort of remake of the original The Haunting from the 60s, as well as an adaptation of Shirley Jackson's novel, which we'll talk more about that in a second, but the film is directed by Jan DeBont, and they started as a cinematographer with films like Cujo, Die Hard, Flatliners, Lethal Weapon 3, so... They did Die Hard? Well, not directing, but but the did cinema. the cinematography, yeah. <laughs> so so they had a great history, obviously, uh, of doing these big budget action movies, uh, and then they also, you know, had a history in directing them as well. So Jandabon's feature debut was Speed. He also and then and then followed that up with Twister, and then more or less kind of killed their career with Speed Two. <laughs> And the haunting. <laughs> yeah, I can I can uh, see that. Yeah, ni- neither were hugely successful or loved by critics and the like. So, <laughs> so yeah, unfortunate. Uh, the film was written by David Self, and this was actually his first uh, produced screenplay. Uh, he also wrote Road to Perdition, as well as the I, I want to say 2010 The Wolfman. I could be getting the year wrong, the one with Anthony Hopkins. <laughs> and of course, like I mentioned, the film was based on the novel by Shirley Jackson, the novel The Haunting of Hill House. And Shirley was also well known for uh, her short story The Lottery, which was one of the few times that I was super excited in school in English class like I don't get me wrong English class is my favorite class I I love reading all that but this is one of the few times I was really excited in that class because we got to read a horror story (laughs) and I I vividly remember just being like one of the few kids that by the time we finished the story because we read these things out loud I'm sure kids still do that uh, we would read them out loud and you know all the other kids like oh my god this is so fucked up you know or (laughs) or just like shocked by it and I was like that was awesome (laughs) of course it is a shocking story, though. Very disturbing. Uh, <laughs> but let's see. The film stars Lily Taylor as Eleanor. She appeared early on in her career in the film Mystic Pizza and then went on to do films like Born of the Fourth of July. And then she didn't really do horror for a while, I think, but has since become somewhat of a mainstay in the genre. Uh, after doing The Haunting, she did the films The Conjuring, Leatherface, The Nun. So she's got a little bit of history there. Uh, it also has Catherine Zeta-Jones as Theo, and Zeta-Jones appeared in various TV series, kind of getting her start there. 
Uh, I would say her big breakout role was probably in The Mask of Zorro. <laughs> Loved that movie. Great film, really fun. Uh, she also wanted to do films like Entrapment, Ocean's 12. Uh, she's playing Morticia Adams in the upcoming Wednesday series. Fuck yeah. <laughs> See, it has Liam Neeson as Dr. Marrow. Uh, he was actually an amateur boxer, which I found what? kind of interesting doing research on him. He appeared in the 1981 film Excalibur, uh, as well as Kroll. I love him in Darkman. Yep. <laughs> really wish he had done the sequels, but he's great in the first one. He was also in Schindler's List, Batman Begins. Uh, a lot of people probably really got to know him through the film Taken, which was nope. a big hit. Yep. Uh, and he appeared in all of those sequels. Uh, he also did The Grey, which I really love. He's a great actor. And la lastly, it has Owen Wilson as Luke. <laughs> Owen actually first appeared in his brother Luke Wilson's film, Bottle Rocket. Uh, he also did the film Anaconda, Armageddon, Zoolander. He's in the upcoming Haunted Mansion. And and, and these are all films that he did early on in his career. So Owen basically just kind of skyrocketed yep. from, <laughs> from the beginning. But so phenomenal cast in this movie. Mm -hmm. And then for those of you that have not seen The Haunting, it's basically about this doctor named Dr. Marrow who wants to run this experiment on fear so he takes a bunch of insomniacs, collects them, and brings them to this house under false pretenses that he's studying their insomnia. And he brings them to this sprawling, supposedly haunted mansion or whatever, and tells them this ghost story. And then they begin to experience more and more phenomena, uh, in particular the character of Eleanor, who believes she has some kind of attachment to the house and... Won't say anything more from there, but it gets spooky. Spooky. <laughs> Still balls from there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh, so we are going to be spoiling everything we can with the film. So if you have not seen it, please go check it out before listening to this. It's not streaming, unfortunately, that I Boo. know of. It's one that I would hesitate <laughs> to say is worth your rental dollars. I... I like elements of it, as I think Chris probably does too, but this it definitely is one that I think kind of spirals a bit towards the third <laughs> act. <laughs> this is a mixed bag of a movie. Definitely a mixed bag of a movie, uh, and we'll get into all that as we go. So uh, so check it out there if you want, but otherwise you have a brief little bit of spoiler-free content before we get into spoilers, we'll let you know when that's about to happen. Uh, so just as usual, tagline versus the movie, what we think of the film overall. So the tagline for The Haunting was, Some houses are born bad. <laughs> uh, so what do you think of the tagline? What do you think of the haunting overall? Uh, I love this tagline because like... The I hate it. <laughs> Let me finish. I love this tagline because like the movie, it makes no sense in the context of the movie. Zero. Like, absolutely none. There's nothing about this house being born bad or anything like that. Like, we'll get into the supernatural na nature of it later on when we get to spoilers, but this is a bad tagline that lies about the film. <laughs> and <laughs> well, so, I mean, it does the job of the tagline, though. It's, uh, it sells the movie. It does. You, know? <laughs> you want to see a movie about a house that's born bad, because how the fuck does that happen? Right. Might have been a more interesting movie. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, look, this movie for me, uh, it's, like I said before, it's a mixed bag of a movie. I have a really strong attachment to this movie. You know, we just wrapped up our month about gateway horror, and on rewatching this film, I realized that this movie is one of my horror gateway movies. 
Just one of the earlier ones you saw. Yeah. yeah. You know, Matt talks a lot about catching horror films, like, on television and early more stuff like that. I was not that kid. I was watching cartoons. It was really rare for me to, like, find a horror film. The Haunting happens to be one of those few that, like, I came across and then kind of kept looking for without ever really knowing what the plot was about. I don't think I'd ever... Yeah, and I know why, because of Catherine Zeta-Jones. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, absolutely. But remember, this is this is baby Chris. This is Chris before she knew she was attracted to women. She, she knew. She knew. <laughs> she did. She did know. We know, even if we don't know. Yeah. But, like, I don't think it was until we were dating that I finally really sat down and got to watch this movie in its entirety and went why the fuck have i been trying to find this movie yeah so so i mean the okay so the haunting i remember being very excited for this when this came out you know because mm-hmm. I, uh, I i don't r- recall really knowing the cast very well at the time i mean i was young you know i was mm-hmm. like 12 years old dating myself here but <laughs> uh but but i do remember being excited for it you know this was kind of like a a brief little peak of of like big budget haunting movies you know mm-hmm. like I, I believe the house on a haunted hill which we're going to talk about later this month came out the same year and and so it was this brief kind of little period of that where you were getting these big budget haunted house movies and it was pretty cool and you know i i remember leaving the haunting and just kind of thinking basically how i feel now which is that there are things i really like about it but it is ultimately it falls apart yeah you know it, it's like it's like a crumbling house in a, in a way it's just <laughs> it's a house of it, cards it's a house of cards it it looks super gorgeous, gorgeous. it's beautiful the the uh the production that goes into it's amazing you know yep. you really appreciate the craftsmanship oh, of yeah. this so-called house of cards and <laughs> and then you know a gust just kind of comes in somewhere in the second act and just blows it all to pieces and (laughs) and and and, you know we'll we'll talk all about that uh in spoilers but no so so we both have our mixed opinions on it and you know i I think the film itself has an interesting history because it it, it's obviously meant to be a remake of the 60s uh haunting film but from my understanding they couldn't really do sort of a direct adaptation or remake of it uh because of studio rights issues of course and so and so they had to do a lot of changes you know we're like i i read somewhere and again these are all you know internet facts <laughs> so who knows how true any of this is but 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 i read somewhere that you know they couldn't even really use any duplicate shots you know like no <laughs> like no shot could look similarly to the original so that's intense it's a little intense so <laughs> So, you know, they were a little handcuffed there. Uh, Stephen Kane actually originally uh, did a version of the screenplay for this, the adaptation, because he's a big fan of Shirley Jackson. Mm-hmm. And uh, after the studio was demanding changes, he ended up leaving the project. And, you know, no coincidence that he ended up going on to do Rose Red, right. which is basically <laughs> the script that he did for this. And, and you can see a lot of similarities to The Haunting and Rose Reds. Yep. <laughs> you know, I just, the thing about The Haunting, like this film and just the story in particular I want to mention before we get into things is that, you know, I, I do think that Shirley Jackson's story is brilliant. It's been a long time since I read the novel, so I don't remember like every bit of it very well. But I can say that, you know, just the way that this story has influenced haunted house movies is extraordinary. You know, mm-hmm. like it, it basically laid the groundwork for how a lot of these stories were told, you know, because this was kind of the one that sort of said of like, as much as I disagree with the tagline, (laughs) this is kind of the story that sort of cemented that idea of houses being born bad, 
you know, which led to films like uh, the Amityville Horror or uh, House on Haunted Hill and stuff like that. You know, like obviously not based on this by any means, but just kind of laying the groundwork for those sorts of ideas that a house itself could be evil. Evil house. You know, and, and a lot of films ended up following kind of Shirley Jackson's sort of blueprint for that. So, so I consider this to be like the quintessential sort of haunted house story it's just <laughs> no and that's that's what i'm really excited about with this because i love haunted haunted house movies and stuff like that i'm excited about this month and the one thing that i think the haunting does get right even if they it's a little muddled is the complicated narrative behind the house and i think that's really cool and that's one of the redeeming parts about this movie mm. You know, for sure. So uh, so we are about to get into the spoiler territory. So again, if you have not seen the film, please go check it out. We're going to ruin everything for you. Yep. That being said, spoiler time. <laughs> so let's just start off with our main character, Eleanor, and just your thoughts on Eleanor and her history. Oh, poor Nell. Yeah. Poor, poor, <laughs> tragic, tragic Nell. Uh, Very tragic character. Yeah. <laughs> Nell, I... She's such an interesting character for me because she is incredibly tragic. And I think that she's a character that a lot of us can really relate to. This is somebody who has been trapped by circumstances into a life that she didn't want to lead. Mm. You know, she gets trapped into taking care of her mother for, what, 11 years where she's not able to go and live her own life. It, it's interesting rewatching this film because it, especially in today's context, it, you know, I, I get a lot of like... <laughs> I get a lot of like COVID vibes off oh, watching this, absolutely. you know, like, like you say relatable and it was relatable before this, mm -hmm. but especially now having been through COVID, I watched this movie and there's so many similarities to just this idea of, you know, being essentially contained to one space mm -hmm. and kind of having to go back out into the world and just being terrified of that. Yeah. You know, cause that's the thing that I find very fascinating with Nell. And, and the thing that I think gets misunderstood about, this film, and I think, you know, maybe more people would appreciate it if they looked at it differently, is that I think I think The Haunting falls into sort of the trap that uh, Guillermo del Toro's Crimson Peak did, which we're going to be talking about next week, in that a lot of people were disappointed with that movie because they expected, you know, sort of this, like, oh, jump scares, oh. Horror, scary, scary ghost movie, you know, mm -hmm. and it ended up being a gothic romance. Yeah. And... Well, the haunting is not a gothic romance. It <laughs> it is very much a psychological kind of gothic romanticism sort mm -hmm. of story, you know, where it's not necessarily about the ghosts, but about Eleanor. Yeah, you know, and so I think just this whole journey of hers with having been contained for so long and having sort of this routine for so long, you know, once her mom dies it's having to kind of readjust her life and she's sort of realizing i don't know what living is yeah you know <laughs> yeah i mean she makes the comment to to theo when they're looking at the doors the doors that remind them of rodan's doorway to hell that it's really the doorway to purgatory and she makes this off content context comment was how she studied purgatory because she was there for 11 years yeah, yeah super uncomfortable thing to say around people not not yeah. <laughs> not good conversation starter you know i mean there's not a lot that nell says that's good conversation starter she, she's kind of a downer she she is the definition of an awkward downer yes <laughs> you know like god bless theo for just being 
so goddamn sexually active that she is still <laughs> she is still trying to get in Nell's pants. Yeah. <laughs> you know, halfway through this movie, despite Nell just saying all kinds of things that would make you go, you know what? Maybe not. <laughs> yeah, Nell just keeps saying the weirdest shit, and Theo's just like, cool, so we're best friends now. Let's roll with this. Let's do this. Yeah, I mean, not even the weirdest shit, but, you know, it's like, you first meet, I mean, this is the thing, it's their first meeting, if mm -hmm. I remember correctly, when they see this door, like, they've just met, Yep. and and they're looking at this giant door, and Purgatory comes up, and like you said, Nell's just like, oh, no, I, I know all about Purgatory, I lived there for 11 years, <laughs> and she says it so, just, earnestly, earnestly, like, nonchalantly, like, it's no big deal, you know, just very much like, oh, yeah, I was there, Yeah. and it's just like, <laughs> the the minute someone says something like that to you, it's like, oh, Okay, you you might have you might have some issues and the, yep. and and we all have that sort of I can fix you mentality. Not that Theo's looking for that. Theo mm -hmm. just wants to get some. But <laughs> but but seriously though, like good for you, Theo, that you just have <laughs> such a sex drive that you're like, I don't give a shit. I'm gonna fuck whatever I can. <laughs> exactly. I'm here for a weekend in this fucking mansion. I'm definitely not fucking Luke or Doctor Maros. <laughs> oh, she's fucking Luke. I wouldn't fuck Luke. I don't. I I. Look, it's, it's not, not up to you, Matthew. I know it's not up to me. I just <laughs> I never I just never really found Owen Wilson that attractive or charming. So. <laughs> I mean, I don't necessarily disagree with you, but if I'm stuck in a creepy mansion, I mean, why not? I mean, fair enough. I mean, I guess if I had to choose between Nell and Owen Wilson, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, at least at least Luke's not going to say some weird shit, but I think Theo's into that. So, I mean, as the as the artist, I think she's kind of into Nell's quirky way of... Oh, yeah, no, of course. Us artists are all fucking weirdos, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Not all artists, just Theo. Uh-huh. Uh, but, you know, Nell, you know, she... God, Nell just breaks my heart this entire time because there is this moment that we have between her and Dr. Marrows where they're in the, the greenhouse for the, for the first time. And it's really where we're starting to get a look into kind of just how off Nell is. And she's getting a little bit more manic, a little bit more unstable. And they're in the greenhouse for the first time. That's like the middle of the movie. We already have a pretty good idea how manic and unstable she is. I mean, I guess for me, this is the moment that I'm like, oh, she's like far gone. She's not coming back from this. Okay. Her, her, her no coming back point. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I, I view the greenhouse as her no coming back point because Dr. Moore was trying to talk to her about what she's feeling and what she's experiencing. You know, Nell just kind of goes off about how like she always wanted an adventure and she's like, but it's just for, you know, soldiers and women who fall in love with bullfighters and you have this moment where you're like oh no you really just do not understand the world outside of you and she has this like weird comment on top of that where she's like you know i can either be a victim or a volunteer and if i get to choose i'm going to be a volunteer and you're like to be haunted now you're choosing <laughs> to volunteer to like not click with the world well, well it's also a sad way of looking at it that <laughs> those are your only two options you know yeah either be a victim or a volunteer. Like, I, I don't know that that's the way that you want to really approach no. life. Um, <laughs> that's why it's her no going back point. Her, her point of no return. Yeah. It, so, I mean, okay. First of all, just on a technicality, I, or just on a technical standpoint, I love the way that Eleanor's approached because, or, or even just the way that the film begins, you know? So like for all that we kind of crap on it in, in certain ways, I, I do think that the film has really effective elements about it. And and one is getting into this mindset of Eleanor, you know, like I love the way that the film opens with the just with this just kind of like heavy breathing, 
you know, as we kind of circle the mansion, uh, which, by the way, is a real mansion that is in Grantham, England, that they shot this at. And I want to go to that mansion. I do, too. But apparently uh, that place was terrifying at night. Like nobody wanted to be shooting there at nighttime for some reason. Life goals. <laughs> Let's stay there overnight. Let's do it. Uh, so but no, but, but there's this heavy breathing as we're kind of circling the mansion. And then that sort of merges into these loud sounds of cars honking and sirens and you know eleanor's city life in her apartment and i kind of love that because it sort of shows you this uh sort of disconnect with her where automatically you almost get the sense that she belongs at the house Mm -hmm. because like just minutes into knowing eleanor we get the sense that like despite all of the noise outside she has not participated in that life. Yeah. You know, she she sort of fits more at Hill House <laughs> uh, where it is quiet and brooding and all these kind of <laughs> things, you know, like that. that's basically been her life. And now she's kind of being thrown out into the noise and that's uncomfortable for her, you know? Yeah. And, and I especially love the, the, the uh, quotes that we have hanging over her mother's bed where it's a place for everything and everything in its place, which itself is, again, a sad way (laughs) to look at things. But it's how Nell views things. You know, Mm -hmm. Nell views life in a very sort of binary way of like, you're supposed to be here and that's it. And this is your purpose and that's it, right? And she sees life that way because she's been taking care of her mom for so long that she has actually forgotten how to live And so with her mom being dead, she now feels like, okay, my place in life, I I now basically have no purpose, Mm -hmm. you know, Uh, which is why the whole thing, like, towards the end of the film where she's like, I have to save the children, you know, it's all basically like, it it almost becomes this fantasy where, like, she wants to be some kind of hero. She does. And I think that she wants to be some kind of hero. She wants to go on an adventure, but she wants to choose it for herself for once. You know, there is a moment with Dr. Marrow and his assistant where they're talking about the candidates, and they bring up the fact that Nell very much has codependency problems. Um, and I think that's... Well, well, she has codependency problems, yeah. but she also has such a horrible experience with people in general, too, because her mm-hmm. fucking sister's a shitbag. <laughs> exactly. And that's the thing is, like, the relationship... And her mom. <laughs> yeah, I mean, her relationships with all of her family are terrible because... Her mom was a piece of work, clearly, from the little bits that we get of just, like, the pounding and the demanding and all that kind of stuff. And then the next moment we have with Nell is finding out that her sister is basically willing to toss Nell out so that she can get free nanny care from her. she (laughs) She wants to shove Nell back into the same role that Nell's been living in, but Nell doesn't want to do that, even though we know that Nell likes to be... Likes needed. to care. She, yeah, exactly. She likes to be needed. But in this case, she finally gets a moment where she gets to choose for herself. And she's so determined that even if she ends up caring for people, she wants to choose it. So fuck her sister. Fuck her her sister's shitty husband and yep. their shitty son. Yeah, I mean, speaking of another moment, you know, that's awkward as hell. Like the when they're all having dinner in the house and, you know, they're all talking about their different issues with insomnia. And Nell's basically... Just like, you know, well, I've never had anything happen to me. Like, you all mm-hmm. have busy lives, and that's why you can't sleep, and I've just never had anything happen. <laughs> and then she goes on to talk about, like, hearing her mom banging on the wall. Like, that again, that's another one of those moments where it's like, 
all right, pretty uncomfortable right now, you know. And again, Theo is still sitting across the table winking at her. Yep. Why is that a moment to wink at somebody? Who, who, who is like, damn, girl, your, your story about hearing your mom knocking on the wall is turning me on, you know? like <laughs> Theo, Theo does that. But I, I like Luke's response to it. Luke is trying to normalize her, help her realize that she's not so different by going, yeah. yeah. You know, he's just like, you're crazy, just like the rest of us. Right. No, yeah. No, Luke is a good dude. As much as, as, you know, Owen Wilson annoys me and as much (laughs) as he might seem like kind of a douchey guy at times in the movie, Mm -hmm. uh, he's a good guy because you're right. He is trying to normalize it. You know, he's trying to help. At least at first, until he just decides, no, she's beyond helping. Yeah, I'm, I'm fucking done with this shit. <laughs> but but it's also why I like the whole scene where she arrives at the house, Eleanor, and you know is meted with Mr. Dudley, played by Bruce Dern. Again, Bruce, an actor like Bruce Dern, and just a little <laughs> bit role here. Um, she's greeted by him, and you know they have that whole conversation about fences and. <laughs> You know, some of you probably sit there and like, why the fuck are they talking about fences? Like, why is this a moment in the movie? And to me, it's sort of to establish the fact that, you know, it's part of human nature to be guarded, but it's really meant to hit home the fact that Eleanor has like armor up Mm -hmm. around her. You know, like she she is more comfortable being inside and locked away than she is being around someone and open. Yeah. You know, that that's kind of what I take away from it is that she basically coming to this house is like her dream scenario because it's essentially just another place that she can be locked away. Yeah. You know, and that and that and that the sad truth of Eleanor is that whether or not that's what she truly wants, that's all she knows really how to be. Mm-hmm. And it's all that she's comfortable with. Right. Yeah, which, you know, she picked the perfect house to do that in, I guess, because this house is fucked up, haunted, and gorgeous. I want this house. I do not. (laughs) I do not want this house. I mean, I can't even imagine just dusting it. Okay, yeah, that would be a nightmare. (laughs) But there's secret passages and, like, weird, creepy statues. I wouldn't want it filled with all the babies. That's creepy. Also, no, fuck that. (laughs) I, God, whoever... Whoever decided to put those nightmare images of all the cherub children made out of wood, just go to hell. <laughs> Look, you have to keep track of your kills somehow. And he chose to do it with weird statues. I, I suppose so. No, so th- the fascinating thing about the house, other than being real house and the the production design being incredibly gorgeous. Uh, and as Chris and I were discussing before the episode, you know, the... Uh, many of these sets are some of the largest ever built and were filmed inside of a hainer because they were just so enormous. I was saying that the, <laughs> the, the set, the set design is gorgeous, but the cool thing about, Oh, but the cool thing about the house is that, you know, to me, this house is basically Eleanor's mind. Oh yeah. You know, like it, it is 100% her mind because again, th- this story, even though we have these other characters, it's about Eleanor when it gets down to it. And it, you know, every every room that is shown in this film is just another representation of her mind. Like, in particular, I love the sort of, like, circus spinning room, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, because to me, I, I don't know about you, but to me, that that's the perfect representation of Purgatory. Because it's basically this place that's just spinning around, aimlessly going nowhere, and on top of it, you have this sort of, like, circus music playing taunting you you. well not just taunting but but more so just kind of being like you know 
essentially representing that sort of like unhinged kind of feeling, you know, like mm -hmm. it, it is mocking in a sense, you know, it, it makes you insane. Like I would go insane listening to that music over and over and over and over <laughs> and over again, you know, but, but it's supposed to kind of represent, I think just the circus of life, you know, mm -hmm. the, the kind of scariness of that. And, and you're just trapped in it spinning around and never being able to escape. Yeah. You know, and so I think that that, that room may be better than any is kind of Nell in a nutshell to me, you know? <laughs> yeah, I definitely agree with you. I, I do think that the different aspects of the house definitely very much represent Nell because I think that the spinning room is her reality. That's who Nell is and who she thinks she is. Yeah. And who Nell wants to be is is the greenhouse because, you know, the greenhouse has the statue of, of Caroline surrounded by children. You know, and taking care of them. And there's that iconic scene where she goes and sits and joins the family ostensibly. Yeah. And, and that's what Nell wants. Nell wants a place where she feels like she's welcome and she belongs. But even Nell can't have a place like that without trauma. And that's where that's where Crane comes in and his diabolical backstory. Well, I mean, I would say even just about the garden, I think <laughs> that the... The really awful thing there, and, and look, I'm sorry, all this is this is a sad episode. <laughs> it is. This is a tragic story. Because Eleanor is such a tragic character, but no, I think the sad thing about the greenhouse is that you know I think you're right. Like I, the greenhouse represents what Eleanor wants. Mm -hmm. You know, Eleanor wants a family that actually feels like a family. You yeah. know, she and, and more importantly, she wants to be needed. You know, and th there's nothing better representative of that than you know being surrounded by children that look to you for for something. You know, yeah. so so represents all the things that she wants and that she feels she needs. And at the same time, you know, there there's something sort of sinister and uncomfortable about that because the greenhouse is also the place where Nell sees the woman who hanged herself. Yeah, you know, and so I think that seeing that there it, you could sort of read it a couple different ways maybe but you know i guess i sort of take it as like maybe maybe a slightly more positive way is is that she could die happy there <laughs> uh <laughs> like she could die happy in this realm that she feels wanted at or it's sort of just you know also kind of like you're going to die without these things. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's tough because that is such a weird room that has such, it seems like it has such positive connotations for her, but it is coupled with death because the first thing she remarks upon in that room is finding the violets. And her response to that is not, ooh, pretty flowers. It's, ooh, somebody must have died here. Yeah. <laughs> like, which she's not wrong about. Right. Um, and, and it's, and it's you know, it's a room where we have this twisted staircase that falls apart later mm -hmm. in the film uh, with Liam Neeson trying to save her, you know. It, you know, it just, that's another part of Nell's mind just sort of falling apart and just kind of, I think, not really maybe understanding exactly what's good for her. Yeah, so. <laughs> I agree with you. And I think that with the house, you know... The, the great-grandfather figure, Pappy Crane, whatever the fuck he's doing. Pappy Crane. Grandpappy That's Crane. That's what we're going to call him, Pappy Crane. Grandpappy Crane. I forgot his first name. Okay. But I think that in this case, he kind of represents the, the darker side of Eleanor as well. I think both him and Nell so much so want to have, you know, they want to have a family. 
you know, and they're willing to go to certain lengths to get it. With with Crane, he's also kind of a representation of the greed of capitalism because he just eats up and uses lives because he's just taking children from the mill. Yeah, I mean that doesn't really play much into the movie though. No. Like the I wanted to bash capitalism though. Well, we always want to bash capitalism, but the thing, <laughs> because fuck capitalism, fuck capitalism. But <laughs> um, well, really quick, I want to say too, you know. A, a fun little thing that you might not have noticed watching the movie the first time is that, uh, you know, the, the special place in Eleanor's apartment is that she also has a garden there, mm-hmm. you know? So, Ooh, somewhat coincidental that, <laughs> that this house also has a garden, right. which she feels very attracted to. Right. But no, the thing with Kane, I, I think Kane is a little bit of two things as well, where it's like on one hand, you know, he, he is Eleanor in a sense in that he, you know, it's also this reclusive person that seems to want family or or, poor, or or at least put out the vibe that they want family or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, for, for whatever reasons, uh, Crane and Eleanor's reasons obviously uh, are different. Yeah, considering <laughs> that he's kind of a pedophile child murderer. Right, which is why, like, while there's similarities to Crane, I actually view Crane as more uh, a representative of Eleanor's mother. You know, oh, because fair. because Eleanor's mother, we never know much about her mm-hmm. other than she was clearly sick with something and that Eleanor had to take care of her. Um, but we get the sense that her mother was very demanding, very strict and very much viewed her kids as kind of like her little helpers instead of actual children. Yeah. You know, and I th- and that's kind of the sense that you get from Crane, because Crane's whole thing is that he has been using kids first of all for labor at his fucking factory you know like these 12 year old kids fucking Um, capitalism again fuck capitalism and you know he's been using them as cheap labor which is basically what eleanor's mom's been doing with her and you know eleanor is this character who is haunted by that she's haunted by her her mother and what she's done to her you know obviously from the fact that she mentions that she hears these banings on the wall that is her mom you know and what is the haunting of this film but Crane? Yeah. You know, so it's it's basically this idea that, like, even going to this magical, this place that's magical to her that she feels at home in, well, she can't escape the haunting of her mother. Mm-hmm. You know, her mother is there in Crane. And because they they are basically one and the same, these entities, these sort of ghosts of her past that really view her as less of a family member and more as more of a laborer you know you can never escape the ghosts of your past the traumas of your past yeah which i mean is all which is what every ghost story basically is you know like the 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 correlation between most ghost stories is that ghosts tend to sort of represent past traumas you know that that's what they usually are is that the representative of that sort of thing that haunts us that we can't forget, you know, and this is kind of a random one because it's not, and it's also not technically a ghost, but like, you know, like the first thing I think of maybe is like uh, Georgie and it, right? Where, <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> where where our main character is haunted by by his the his, death of his little brother and his guilt over him having died, right? His past and, mistakes, right? And that's what Pennywise torments him with. So I mean, that's what ghosts usually are: is they're 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 not always necessarily good or bad, but they're these things that 
live with us that that haunt us these past traumas right yeah well and i think in that sense that's why eleanor gets so fixated on saving the children i think a lot of other people would want to get the fuck out of that house no matter what most people would want to leave the house except for maybe you you seem to want (laughs) to live there despite knowing the problems I'm, i'm very curious how i would react to a ghost but with eleanor with nell it's very much if she can save the children i think that she views that she can save herself and I think that's what she's trying to accomplish with this, is she's trying to overcome these past 11 years, what her life has been, what her life has dragged her down into. And if she can save the innocence of these children, maybe she can retain some innocence for herself. But it doesn't, it doesn't work out for her. It doesn't, it doesn't go too well for her. It does not. <laughs> it does not go well it for her. It does not go well In for her. In every now. version of this story, right. it does not go well for Eleanor. <laughs> wah, wah, now. <laughs> It also doesn't go well for Theo, you know, because Theo just wants a fuck. Yes. <laughs> and, and, and poor Theo never gets that. So I find yeah. the relationship between the two of them pretty fast. Well, actually, I shouldn't say fascinating. I, I find the relationship between them interesting, <laughs> let's okay. say. So, well, so, so first of all, you know, and, and someone made this comment that I'm going to mention uh, later when we do our audience comments, but. You know, someone made this comment that that I agree with where, you know, the the 90s in particular and the early 2000s were kind of this period of sort of like the the bisexual character and Mm -hmm. sort of like Hollywood's fascination with that of like, oh, my God, here's this bisexual character. And, oh, they're they're sexy and and, you know, they're going to tempt you, their temptation. Mm -hmm. You know, they're going to make you do things or they're going to turn you gay or, you know, like I'm okay with all those things. Well, you know, except for the idea that <laughs> that someone will turn you oh, gay. Oh yeah, that's you know? not like, that's not a thing. <laughs> but but that but that was sort of Hollywood's thing is they they had all these characters like Theo that basically didn't really have any character other than the fact that they were bi, you know? Because <laughs> <laughs> I mean that's kind of Theo's so thing. Like mm-hmm. that's really the backstory that we know about Theo is she's an artist and she's bi. So <laughs> that's definitely but, true. But but so the thing with that with her though and and why you know why I find why the why I think the nicest word I can say about the way their relationship is used is is interesting is because you know I think that by implication of the film so the way that their relationship is approached to me kind of reads like Nell is either is either gay or ace and we're not mm-hmm. really we're not really given an affirmative on either mm-hmm. but but you know theo is basically this woman who is trying to seduce eleanor every chance she gets <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> until maybe the end you know when eleanor is like completely insane mm-hmm. <laughs> um but she's trying to seduce her every chance she gets and you know it, we get all of the sort of kind of filmic tricks to imply this you know like aside from the obvious of what the you obvious know, hitting on her the obvious sitting on her but you get all these things like theo is dressed in red a lot of the times you mm-hmm. know and red's supposed to be seductive and sexual and then she later tries to you know she puts her red robe on eleanor which is supposed to be you know she's trying to sexualize eleanor she's trying to she's trying to turn her more into a sexual being and get her out of her shell you know that's mm-hmm. what that red is she's trying to like overcome her with it basically uh and then a lot of the a lot of the set design you know has this red that kind of begins to filter into uh the scene that surrounds eleanor you know Mm -hmm. because i think the alternative thing that's going on here is that 
aside from you know the kind of obvious stuff going on with Eleanor where she's trying to find her place in the world, part of that, and I know you hate me for saying stuff like this because I know you hate when I say everything's about <laughs> sex, but like part, but part of, but part of the haunting, the the alternative thing that's going on is that it's also about Eleanor sort of discovering sexuality and you'll, and kind of her reaction to it so. you'll be surprised to find that i agree with you this time well look at that look at that <laughs> so i do have to argue a little bit that i think that theo is a little bit more than just the bi character you know that's out to seduce eleanor because for me the way that i view theo in this movie is um for for nell you have two options she's got crane on the one hand and the children and the house and the life that she's known and she has Theo on the other hand. And I think that Theo represents the world. All of the possibilities open to open to Eleanor. And well, that, she calls herself the world. Exactly. She basically calls herself the world when she says that the world's been missing you as she's looking at herself and Theo in the mirror. Exactly. Or herself and Eleanor. Yeah. And so it's I find that their relationship is really interesting because, you know, I think that um, Lily Taylor does a really good job of showing Nell's conflicting feelings. Because we can tell that I think that Nell is attracted to Theo and what Theo promises. And Theo kind of represents the life that Nell wishes she had. She wishes that she was adventurous and artistic. She wishes that she could have love without commitment. That's a huge thing that they kind of talk about because Nell's never really had that option. And so I think in turns, Nell is both you know, attracted to Theo because who the fuck would it? It's Catherine Zeta Jones looking sexy as fuck this entire movie. As she always does. As she always <laughs> does. You know, and I think that to your point, you know, it is now having to explore what her sexuality is. How does she feel about all of these openings of the world outside her? And it's scary. Well, well I mean, look, I mean, that's the thing though, is like, you can see her as the world or sexuality, but it's basically mm. one and the same. Yeah. I, and I'm sorry, it's one and the same because again, everything's about sex. So, <laughs> so, so die on this hill. <laughs> so, so you walk out into the world and everything's about sex when you go out there, you know, oh, so, that's very <laughs> unfortunately true. It's very unfortunately true, you know, depending on how you look at it, but it's true. And so, so regardless of how you look at her though, you know, I think, but that, that is the crux of what's going on here is that, you know, Theo is the character that is basically, that is basically kind of leading Eleanor to her sexual discovery. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I tend to lean more towards the idea that Eleanor is potentially ace, because I agree with you that I think yeah. she wants the things that Theo has in terms of like the adventure, you know, the kind of freedom that she sort of uh, inspires and all that. But, but, but just little things I pick up on, like, despite all of that, she never really gives, she never really gives like the sexual attention back in any sort of way, you yeah. know, like she's it, it's so to me, it's not just that she, to me, it's not necessarily that she's afraid to express her sexuality for Theo. Mm -hmm. I think that she's more just uncomfortable by sex in general. Yeah. Because, you know, like, like, you know, I, I'm just going to say like when, when, when Theo takes her blouse off and her tits are hanging out practically, <laughs> you know, Nell's response is to turn away and not sit there staring at him. 
yeah. as, as I would. <laughs> and I have to relate to Nell in this. And yeah, I agree with you. I do think that Nell is, is ace. I think she's very interested in emotional connection with people. Yes, definitely. You emotional, know, not as much sexual. Yeah, so. I think that, you know, being outside of the world, I think would definitely, because I don't want to say that this is necessarily an ace trait, trait, but a trait that we do see with Nell is an uncomfortableness with physical contact. Yeah. She doesn't like anything she doesn't touching her. Like, she doesn't like Theo touching her. She doesn't like Theo touching her. She doesn't like the ghost touching her. She doesn't like anything touching her. Well, and speaking of the ghosts, you know, this is another thing is, again, ghosts, ghosts are very representative of, like, the, the things internal that trouble us. And mm-hmm. and it, to me, it's no coincidence that most of the time that we see ghosts in this movie is when they're visiting Eleanor in bed. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so I think that part of kind of what's happening in The Haunting is – the longer the film goes on, the more she develops this relationship with Theo, the more that sort of, I guess you could say, the ghost of the sexuality mm-hmm. is kind of uh, taking over, you know? It's kind of it's kind of becoming, uh, how do I say this? It, it, it It's becoming more of a part of her mind, you know? She's thinking more about it. The ghost is coming out more, right? Yeah. And, and you know, the, the bedroom becomes this place of danger, basically, where... Mm-hmm. Where, you know, again, no coincidence, the the moment that Eleanor is in most danger, aside from, you know, when she dies at the end, <laughs> <laughs> the moment that Eleanor is in most danger is when the, the whole bedroom basically comes alive. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she's got these fucking, like... Spikes. Like, spikes coming down, which, first of all, why the hell are those spikes over the bed in the first place? <laughs> Who the hell wants to sleep under spikes? Uh, but I mean, these, that sounds dope. I'm not gonna lie. No, it doesn't. <laughs> these so these spikes come down, you know, and almost kill her. And then it, what really stands out to me is, first of all, I mean, it's gorgeous. First of all, just mm-hmm. the design of it all. But uh, but the whole room coming alive and the windows forming into like these watchful eyes, you know. And it, I I don't know that Eleanor is religious or not. But because so many of these stories, you know, are written by people who either follow religion or have that in their subconscious, it almost kind of plays like this sort of God is judging you. Well, God's watching you, you know, oh, yeah. it, it plays like that. It plays like this thing of like God is watching you and, and sort of this sense of like God sees you, mm-hmm. you know, having these these lustful thoughts <laughs> or these or these, you know, devilish thoughts or whatever the fuck you want to place on. I'm not saying that. Shirley Jackson or or, oh, yeah. or any of them are mm-hmm. viewed by sexuality or aceness in that way, but but you know just this idea that like God is is watching you have these lustful thoughts, you know, and, mm-hmm. and that's kind of how Eleanor sees it, I think. And so, you know, and and she even makes mentions too of like you know she says you can never hide a secret, and I feel like that's part of what's going on too is Eleanor is realizing like I can't hide this secret about myself. Yeah. You know, whatever it is, she cannot, she's realizing that the more she goes out into the world, the more she won't be able to hide that. Yeah. And, you know, I will agree with you and take it one step further of like, we, uh, you're talking about all, all of this stuff is happening in the bed and all that kind of stuff and the spikes. But I want to point out specifically that the spikes pin her to the bed. Yeah. And I I think that that's really a thing. If we're going with like her being on, on the A spectrum, which I'm totally down for. um, I think that that's really relatable because when you are, ace and potentially bisexual or gay and you're trying to figure that stuff out sometimes at least speaking from personal experience it can very much feel like that while you're figuring that stuff out and you're stressed out about it the bedroom is the scariest place well well, look i mean 
you know, I, I personally I think mm-hmm. the bedroom's the scariest place for anybody. <laughs> you know, like like unless that's unless, true. Unless you're one of those people that's just like, you know, got a fucking ten foot schlong or something, and you're just like the most confident motherfucker <laughs> out there. You know, like the bedroom's a scary place for all of us more yeah. first kind of experiencing that stuff, and so. And for Eleanor, I mean, mm-hmm. I think we can probably assume she's a virgin, yep. or at least we get the idea that that's probably the case. And so, like, regardless of whatever her sexuality is, and again, I do, I do lean towards her being ace, but regardless of whatever it is, you know, she, yes, like you're saying, it is that suffocating feeling in the bedroom that is, mm-hmm. like, pinning her down, yep. you know, and that scares her. Mm-hmm. Like, like, this is one of the few times that she actually feels scared in the house is in the bedroom. Yeah. Well, because to your point, you go out into the world and you're assaulted by the fact that everything is sex. And that's what Eleanor is realizing, you know, becoming friends with Theo. She's going out to the world, everything is sex, and now she has to, like, you know, confront that aspect. What are are Eleanor's first two interactions outside the world that we see in this house, right? Mm -hmm. The whole gate thing where we get the sense that she wants to be guarded, Mm -hmm. and then Theo basically being like, fuck your gate, I'm getting in there, you know? (laughs) I'm getting into your house and I'm going to be your friend, bitch. Exactly. I I am getting deep in those hallways and you're going to like it, you know? Like, that's... (laughs) Those are basically <laughs> Nell's two first interactions, right? Yeah. But, you know, but but look, all of this kind of leads, too, into, like, the whole experiment that's going on and what ultimately I think is kind of happening in the ending here, mm-hmm. which is, okay, we get this Dr. Mayo's experiment, right? He wants to study fear using insomniacs, right? First of all, I love the name Dr. Mero because, to me, the name Mero sort of implies that he's sort of, like, digs into you like digs deep into the bones of you yeah with this kind of like scientific sort of detachment or cruelty or however you want to look at it Mm -hmm. but he's doing this and you know i think that essentially what kind of happens here is that to me all of this is in eleanor's head okay the the, like she never even goes to the house no, no 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 she goes to the house all that happens the ghost story is false to, ah. So so the novel itself sort of leads you to the implication of maybe this is in her head. There's also implicate the, the novel also goes deeper into the idea that maybe Eleanor has telekinetic powers and she's sort of manifesting the ghosts, which I think this movie leads more into mm-hmm. and, and it leads less into the idea that she's that she's just imagining it. Um, but but either way, to me, it's all a creation uh, by Eleanor's mind because, you know, you get the first, you get the introduction by Mrs. Dudley, uh, played by Marion Seldes, who, you know, sort of introduces that whole speech of like, we don't come here after dark, you know, whatever the hell she says. And the reason that, that the film has her say it twice to both Eleanor and Theo, and then Eleanor kind of catches on to it, mm-hmm. is that it's rehearsed. But it's rehearsed not in a sense of, like, this is just what Mrs. Dudley says to all the guests. It's rehearsed in a sense that Mrs. Dudley is performing from a script. Mm. You know, it's rehearsed in this, in this idea that, like, this is what Dr. Merrill told her to say. Because the experiment is all about building up this false ghost story to scare everybody and then kind of see what happens. Yeah. You know, and so I take it as Mrs. Dudley does not believe in any sort of haunting or anything like that or doesn't you know, whatever, all that's bullshit. Yeah. I, I think that she's just basically reading a script to kind of set things off. Mm-hmm. And it, it's kind of from that point that as things go on, it's really just Eleanor experiencing things. 
You know, yeah. it like no one No one else sees anything. No one else sees anything until the very end of the movie, you know. Up until that point, it's basically you know, like like the like the loud knocking, for instance. Which by the way, I also kinda love going back to what we were saying about the bedroom stuff, is that it's this loud knocking, like someone trying to come in, and then it turns out that Luke is knocking on the doors. You know, it's mm-hmm. almost like this implication of being frightened of a man trying to come into your bedroom, you know? I mean that is a um, terrifying thought. It is a terrifying <laughs> thought. <laughs> but but you know the uh, the the knocking is basically explained because you know the the Theo hearing it it sounds a hell of a lot like the pipes mm-hmm. that Luke demonstrates later on yeah it's basically the same sound design you know so 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 all these things kind of play in where like we get the idea that basically everyone is just creating these things out of their fears Mm -hmm. and Eleanor most so because like we've been talking about Eleanor basically just wants to be the hero of her story she wants a purpose Mm -hmm. and so to me Eleanor is basically through this whole film through everything that is put into her mind from Dr. Marrow and the house and everything else she's basically kind of creating this hero story for herself where she can find purpose and feel like she has some sort of point yeah you know i i definitely agree with you on that i would like to point out that dr marrow is another horror movie doctor who should lose his fucking license every horror movie doctor and every horror movie scientist is awful at their job yes they are same with cops basically if you have a profession <laughs> in a suck. horror movie you suck at your job you suck because <laughs> like i would like i just have to point out the fact that dr marrow was told that what he was doing was unethical and he was not going to be able to control it and he went Fuck these people. I'm sexy and I can do whatever the fuck I want. I mean, Liam Neeson is sexy, but... (laughs) Not my type, but you can have him. Good voice. I like his voice. Fair enough. (laughs) I'll agree with you on that. But yeah, I do I do agree with you. You know, this is this is Nell's story and out of everybody in the house, Nell has the most to fear. She has the most ghosts, she has the most demons that she's battling. Everybody else, you know, they have their problems but they know their place in the world. And Nell doesn't, and Nell, hate to say this, Nell unfortunately needs to either figure out a purpose or figure out a way that she can die in a way that makes her feel like she has purpose. No, but I mean, that's the tragedy of it, is that for her, it's not a decision between one or the other. Mm -hmm. It's basically just Nell wants to feel needed. Yep. You know, and in this case, she creates a hero story for herself where she gets to save everyone. Mm -hmm. Like, she not only gets to save physical people from danger, but she is saving children from some made-up ghost. Yeah. You know? And so the way... So I, I think all of the clues are there. And look, the, the thing that I do really like about The Haunting, which I, I guess we haven't talked as much about as I would have liked, but it's a very psychological film. Yeah. You know, it's a very psychological film, and it's the kind of movie where I think that if you want to find more appreciation in it, you really can take the story how you want it, mm-hmm. you know? It's very... it's it, A lot of it is left up to interpretation. And so... Uh, for me, the way that I think I think the clues are there to kind of imply that this is all uh, made up in Nell's mind, because even from the very beginning, when she gets the phone call, you know, she gets this call that we later learn is her thinking Dr. Merrill called her to invite her to this. Right. <laughs> yeah. And and we find out that he didn't, you know. And so I think that it's just as possible that she was flipping through the newspaper and it, saw this ad 
and basically made up the phone call herself. Yeah. You know, basically made up the fact that she was invited as a way to sort of push herself to do it. Yeah. Because she's this person who's been so reserved from the world, she needed that kind of extra push from her subconscious to kind of get her to go. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. I think that she is, again, looking for her place in the world. I agree with you that she saw the ad, went, cool, this is the adventure I've been looking for, gets to the house and meets fucking Theo and Luke and the world and what it would be if she engaged with it more and went, oh, fuck no, I'm not dealing with that shit. There's some babies (laughs) here I have to save. There's some crocheted shit that tells me I got to be in my place. I'm out. I'm good. No, I'm not sure sure that she meets Luke and Theo and goes, oh, fuck no, I'm I'm dead to the world. Screw this, you know. Although it's not not impossible. Like, I'm not Mm -hmm. saying that that's not the case because Luke is very much the definition of, like, Oh, this is what's out there for me in so men, you know, yeah. just being this oh. fucking airheaded dumbass. Uh, and she then, and she then, says "fuck no" on Luke so hard she kills him. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and Theo, you know, is yeah, it's it's too much for her, right? Yeah. Um, but ultimately, I just think that you know she she gets to this house and it's just everything that she it's everything that she needs in her mind, mm-hmm. you know, where it's, it's basically just cementing the idea that like, not only does she want to be a hero in her story and have purpose, but she also just needs a place where she feels like she belongs. Yeah. Going back to the whole, you know, everything in its place kind of, kind of quote. Yeah. And so the fact that she dies here, you know, I think is suitable for her. I think mm-hmm. it's what she wants. I mean, you know, she wants to die there. She wants to exist in this place forever as this sort of, spirit that she assumes lives there not only that but she dies in front of the purgatory doors like right and and that's that's a huge thing well right because it's a way to basically say that she has ascended because Mm -hmm. look the the (laughs) thing the thing like again this is where the movie kind of falls apart is the third act because i i I do think that for the first two acts of the film for most of the movie it's very effective it's tense the production design's great yep uh you know and yes you know some people might complain oh not a lot happens which i always hate that criticism of movies because to me something's always happening yeah Uh, it's just whether or not it's engaging there is stuff going on it's a very psychological movie you know Mm -hmm. but but once you get to the third act things become very campy and corny (laughs) you know things become very corny where you've got like the ghost coming into her, and oh, she lights up with this like heavenly aura, you know. And you know, like kinda... Grim Reaper, Grandpappy Crane, and, and Grim Reaper, <laughs> Grandpappy Crane, you know, like all that stuff is just. And then the dialogue in the end's not oh, very good so either, bad. you know. It's very forced, and like the third act's just a mess, all right. The third act needed another draft, <laughs> but the symbolism of it is, yeah, she's basically ascending. Mm-hmm. You know, like to her, death is an escape, basically. You yeah. know, it's it's freedom. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's the sad thing about it is it's sad, you know, like no one should have to feel like that. But for Eleanor, that's kind of what it becomes is, you know, she's just she doesn't really know how to live. Yeah. So to her, death is an escape. Yeah, she's finding you know? she's finding her purpose in her death. Exactly. Yeah. And and she's manifested her for herself, you mm-hmm. know, which is, again, why I think she creates all of this Yeah. Uh, to kind of feel like her death has meaning, yeah. you know, and and why I and some of you might argue like. Oh, but Dr. Marrow experiences, you know, the the thing in the fountain and they and they see the ghost in the end. And to me, I would just say that I think at a certain point in the film, especially if you're looking at this as kind of Eleanor sort of being our our narrator, so to speak, 
Uh, again, it's the untrustworthy narrator sort yeah. of thing. She's you know, super at, unreliable. At, at, a, at a certain point, you just can't rely on what the film is showing you. And I do believe that, you know, about two thirds of the way into the movie, we just get to this to this point where everything we're seeing is 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 part of Eleanor's imagination. Yeah, it's how she you know? she views life going on around her. Right, exactly. I mean, you could easily interpret the last shot of the movie where where Dr. Marrow and, and Theo are at the gates and and the Dudleys arrive and they're like, what the fuck? You know, and the two of them look like they've just seen a ghost, but it doesn't have to be because they've seen a ghost. No, it's they saw someone they, die in front of them. It's because they just witnessed two people die. Yep. You know? <laughs> and, that shit's and, traumatic. And as for the deaths, I mean, we can't say specifically how, how Eleanor might die in this scenario where she imagines everything, but it's pretty easy to assume that, you know, that Luke just happened into the fireplace somehow got his head and knocked got off. his head knocked off by the fucking flute you know <laughs> the lion flute i mean that thing would knock your head off if it hit you it's pretty yep. obvious <laughs> oh and one last thing i want to mention just for another clue really quick is that uh you also have the whole unexplained thing with welcome home eleanor mm-hmm. uh over the painting in red so while i cannot specifically explain this <laughs> i will say that that is something that eleanor could have manifested in in the sense that like she did it herself Mm -hmm. as a way to sort of further home her idea that this place is haunted and she belongs there because again she wants to belong and then we see the red footprints and those red footprints don't have to be blood it could easily be paint yeah you know and and we also after that very shortly after that the camera kind of lingers on her feet while she's in bed and you don't really get a good look at her feet but I feel like it's the camera trying to tell you of like, because, you know, you can't see it well enough, but I feel like it's the camera trying to hint that like there is paint on her feet, you know, to sort of imply like she did this. I can, I can see that. Again, I don't know how, yeah. you know, there are, there are unexplained. Carry powers. Sure. There are Carry unexplained powers. pieces of my, of my theory here, mm-hmm. but. <laughs> but when you have an but, unreliable narrator. Exactly. So anyway. Okay. So we gotta, we gotta wrap up. So. <laughs> Who is your killer idiot of the haunting? Dude, the fucking doctor. Unethical, uncontrolled experiments. You're a fucking idiot, bro. You traumatized a shit ton of people, and two people are dead now because you thought fear was sexy. Fear is sexy. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what? Uh, for me, it's Luke because, uh, you know, not only is Owen Wilson clearly maybe the most dumb character of the cast, but also <laughs> just... The, when when the carpet is leading him into the fireplace, it's like, just roll off the fucking carpet, man. <laughs> roll, why, buddy. Why are you riding this thing like Aladdin? Just fucking roll off. <laughs> okay, look, if I had an option to ride a carpet like Aladdin, I absolutely would, even if it's leading me to my death. Not if a ghost is leading to your death, Chris. <laughs> look, childhood fantasy. I gotta go with it. Yeah. Okay, whatever. Uh, what about your killer death? I mean, we only have two deaths, and I'm not gonna say no. So Luke getting his fucking head knocked off. Yeah, that's also mine as well. I mean, to me, it's the best part of the movie. Yeah. Uh, Part of that is because I really didn't like Owen Wilson when I saw this film. <laughs> so when he got his head knocked off, I was like, fuck yeah, man. <laughs> I just thought it was uh, so cool. But it's also just a really cool death. It is a really cool death. And, yeah. it, and it's unfortunate that we don't get more like that in the movie. Again, not that kind of movie, but... But still. But still, good yeah. death. Uh, what about your killer MVP? Uh, for me, that goes to the production designer, uh, Eugenio Zan- Zanetti. Because um, the house is gorgeous. And that's the thing. It's a combination of, of the house in England, which you brought up, and then the sets they built. And, like, the hangar they had to build these sets on, these are some of the biggest sets that exist. Yeah. Um, they had to build them on the hangar that housed the spruce, groups, 
spruce goose, which was the giant fucking almost unflyable plane that Howard Hughes built. Like mm. these sets are huge and intricate, and that's so fucking cool. I love it. Yeah, yeah no, the the sets are incredible. Uh, so much work went into them. It's honestly a thing that I think deserves a lot more love from this movie. Yep. Um, cause I know that people hate this film, but damn it. You gotta at least appreciate the, the so look of it. <laughs> um, well, so, so since that was my pick, but I, I will just throw in the visual effects team because I actually think that for 1999, the visual effects in this film are pretty good. Yeah. Pretty solid. You know, like watching this again, like a lot of it's actually pretty decent and I don't really think is aged that poorly. Uh, compared to what we see now. So. It kind of holds up. It's not great, but it kind of holds up. Yeah, I mean, I'm never a huge fan of visual effects, uh, it, like CGI and that kind of stuff, but uh, it actually looks pretty good in The Haunting. i got to give it that. So, <laughs> it's not the worst we've seen. <laughs> not the worst we've seen. Uh, so, uh, so every week on Twitter, we always put up a poll, kind of getting your thoughts and feelings on the film, what you think of it uh, at Killer Critics. So between love it, it's fine, don't like it, never seen it, where do you think the audience fell on The Haunting? <laughs> Okay, so The Haunted is a special place in my heart, but I know that a lot of people might kind of view it as a dumpster fire. So I'm going to go with don't like it as our majority. Close. Uh, so Love It got 13.6%. It's Fine got 41.7%. Don't Like It got 33%. And Never Seen It got 11.7%. So honestly, that's kind of where I thought it would yeah. fall because it was a very like meh kind of movie mm -hmm. and usually when you get that it's between it's fine and don't, don't like it. Yeah. <laughs> i'm glad that it was it's fine that makes me happy yeah no because that that's how i feel about the movie mm -hmm. is it's fine it's fine i don't hate it i don't love it it's good good stuff about it not so good stuff about it <laughs> good laundry film sure uh <laughs> so we always get comments from you all as well so again these are all from twitter first up is at real feels pod so that's r-e-e-l F-E-E-L-S-P-O-D, and they obviously have a podcast. Check them out. But they say, honestly, it's an all right horror, certainly dated, but there are some really killer moments that are fun, creepy, and horrific. Wailing wooden children faces, lion flume decapitator, and of course, when C... And of course, when Catherine Zeta-Jones slapped Neeson during his freakout, all in all, it isn't a bad remake. No, I absolutely agree with you. That pretty much sums up everything I feel about the film. Just have to point out, I love Liam Neeson's line before that because he's like, I study why people feel the way they feel and then she slaps him and it's great. Yeah, it's, it, you know, you almost feel like she's slapping him because of his performance there. Yeah, it's like, so stupid. Like, say the line better, motherfucker. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, yeah, no, I agree with all that. The only thing I would say is I actually don't really feel the film's that dated. Again, I, I think a lot of it holds up. I, I really mm -hmm. do. I think a lot of it really looks pretty damn good. So. Nope. Maybe a dated kind of story, but mm -hmm. uh, but anyway. So thank you at Real Feels Pod for the comment. Appreciate it. Uh, next up is a comment from at DAB Five. I probably said that oh, totally incorrectly. Uh, so that's D E A B E A, and then the number five. And they say it's okay. I guess I don't have any strong feelings. I didn't hate it, and I definitely didn't love it. It's just a there kind of movie, you know. <laughs> Yes, we do know, and we do happen to agree with you. Yeah, that that's a good way to describe it as a there kind of movie. Yep. I, I think it's very acceptable for <laughs> for the haunting. Um, again, but you know, production design beautiful. Beautiful. <laughs> yep. Uh, so anyway, thank you at DAB for five for the comment. Appreciate it. Uh, next up is a comment from at Siddic Rex. So that's S I D D I Q R E X, and they say. Owen Wilson getting his head bitten off by the haunted lion sculpture, Was It a Lion, was the high point of this film. 
Lisa Kimmel Fisher was head and shoulders too good for it. Another terrible Neeson accent, but what a cast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all of that is accurate. Did the lion bite his head off or knock it off? Well, so so when it actually happens, the lion makes a movement like it's biting his head off. Mm-hmm. But my interpretation is it just knocks it off. Okay. Either way. Amazing. Yeah. I think it makes a ghost mouth like, <laughs> it, like a ghost bites his head off. But again, I think it's all in Nell's imagination, so I think it just knocks it off. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so anyway, thank you at Cidic Rex for the comment. Appreciate it. Uh, next was a comment from at Rad Reputation XX. So that's Rad Reputation XX. And they say, a waste of gorgeous art direction. How on earth did the director of Speed and Twister manage to make scenes of people running through hallways look and feel so slow? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't feel like it's a waste because we still got cool stuff out of it. But I think... If I was going to pinpoint a reason why this movie feels unbalanced, I think that it is taking a director that does action and then trying to do a ghost story. And I think that sometimes those two directions don't mesh up as well as we would like. And so you get slow running scenes. Well, you know, to me, you know, this is an interesting question, really, because to me, I think that the fact that Jan DeBont directed it actually is a big part of the reason for why the parts that do work work Mm -hmm. because Bont clearly has a sense of how to do these big set pieces you know this really great production design he he know he makes the movie feel bigger than it is you Mm -hmm. know and look and and you can argue about whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing with the film uh, because some would argue that you know I I've gotten responses from people that say the film is too overproduced but (laughs) Uh, but he is the reason that I think the film feels as big as impressive looking as it is uh, because he comes from that background of doing these really big action set pieces, you know? So in a weird way, DeBont's actually, I think the reason that the parts of the film that work do work mm-hmm. uh, at the same time, you know, like Rad Reputation XX mentions is that you also kind of, it also in a way is a film that doesn't feel right for the director. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think that this is a film that Jandabont just based on the background, not saying that action directors can't do a film like this because of, of course they can, you know, these are talented people. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but the background doesn't fit the movie. The haunting is not speed. You know, yeah. the haunting is not twister. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a psychological, you know, <laughs> atmospheric movie. It's not supposed to be, big and exciting and all that kind of stuff it's supposed Mm -hmm. to be brooding and intimate and all of those things so it's just kind of this weird thing of like it's not quite a fit for their style Mm -hmm. but their style is also what makes it memorable so it's just very odd that way (laughs) (laughs) their strengths make the good parts really good and the bad parts really bad essentially yes (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so thank you so anyway thank you at red reputation xx for the comment appreciate it uh, and then last is a comment from at 324 underscore B21. So that's the numbers 324 underscore B21. And they say, this movie was released toward the start of the bisexual titillation period. Characters that were attractive but offered little in the way of development except to announce their sexuality and then act lecherous toward more, quote, pure, quote, unquote, characters. Beautiful sets, but no thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I think that it's a problem that we run into a lot of times with film is that sometimes when they try to introduce a new type of character, it ends up being stereotype, stereotype. Get out of here. Hollywood stereotypes, people. <laughs> right, and so it's this weird News bad. to me. <laughs> I feel like it's this weird bad of yay representation, but boo, 
one note representation. I mean, look, literally every time Hollywood tries to represent, you know, (laughs) they fuck it up for a while in the initial period. They fuck it up for quite a while. And honestly, even after a while, they still fuck it up because all Hollywood really does well is straight white people. So, (laughs) (laughs) Um, but no, I, I agree. Like, like I said earlier, you know, this is the comment that I was talking about is that this was a period where you got a lot of that and it's not right. (laughs) You know, (laughs) Um, so glad things have changed a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, all that would still say we don't get the best representation, uh, for bisexual or queer people in cinemas. Yeah. <laughs> um, but either way, thank you at three, two, four underscore B two one for the comment. Appreciate it. Uh, so as far as releases go, this weekend is enormous. <laughs> I do not have enough time to go into all of the great releases you want to look forward to this week, but just a few to mention briefly, uh, first up terrifier two will be in theaters, so this is the sequel to the original Terrifier, which introduces us to the now iconic horror villain Art the Clown. Oh, fuck no. Uh, so, <laughs> I hate this guy. So, so I have seen Terrifier 2, and I will say this, I prefer the simplicity of the first one, uh, but that being said, the second one is just an epic fucking gore fest of nonsense, you know, like, it's it's kind of like they threw every single concept for a sequel into this movie and none of it's explained none of it really works but it's a hugely entertaining ride because it's just basically two and a half hours of just the most nauseating epic disgusting gore (laughs) (laughs) in a move in a slasher film that you'll probably see on a big screen this year i mean i can't imagine seen anything else comparable in theaters this year so uh so if you are one of those gore hounds that is into really sick and twisted stuff terrifier 2 is for you so uh so let's see we also have hellraiser the new hellraiser coming to hulu and i have not had the pleasure of seeing this yet but heard somewhat mixed reviews but mostly i'm hearing that it's great david bruckner did an excellent job jamie clayton's amazing uh, so hopefully that will live up to it. It looks great. I can't wait to see it. Uh, and then we also have a film called Deadstream, which is on Shutter. by the time you're listening to this. Basically about uh, a YouTube celebrity who does this show where he goes to where, – where he basically does like dares essentially uh, and records it all. And so he goes to this haunted house by himself. And the best way I think I can describe it is it's basically like Evil Dead by way of found footage horror you know, so it, it's got a, it's got this great, like, kind of Evil Dead energy to it. Uh, really fun. Perfect for spooky season. So check that out on Shudder if you can. And then lastly, I'm just going to mention really quick Werewolf by Night on Disney+, Plus, <laughs> uh, which is an adaptation of that comic character. It's in black and white. It looks gothic as fuck. I can't wait to watch it. I, I'm so incredibly jealous of the people that have seen it already. <laughs> uh, and then that's not even mentioning all the TV shows coming out this week. Chucky! uh the 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 midnight club like just so much fucking shit (laughs) you have no you your weekend is set (laughs) with horror uh so next week we're gonna be talking about crimson peak which is streaming on netflix you can do your research there check it out there uh otherwise that's gonna do it for us so i'm matt and i'm chris and have a great night horror fans bye i hope you've enjoyed tonight's episode of killer horror critic If you'd like to scream with us some more, please subscribe on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at KillerFromSpace, as well as Instagram at Killer underscore Horror underscore Critic. New episodes release every Friday, so keep your eyeballs peeled. 
just the way I like them. Have a good night, horror fans. <laughs>